1: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 439th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the world's greatest chefs and humanitarians. Spanish-born and American naturalized, he opened his first restaurant in the United States, Haleo, 29 years ago, and he now oversees the Think Food Group, an empire of dozens of restaurants, including Minibar and the Bazaar. The only chef in the world to have received two Michelin stars and four Bib Gourmand awards, he was named Bon Appetit's Chef of the Year in 2004 and the James Beard Foundation's Outstanding Chef of 2011. And in 2010, he became the first chef ever to receive Spain's prestigious Order of Arts and Letters medallion in recognition of his efforts to showcase the Spanish culture abroad. As another celebrity chef, Emeril Lagasse, put it, quote, he is a brilliant restaurateur who has shaped America's culinary history and course by introducing his distinctive taste on Spanish food and culture, close quote. But he is today perhaps best known as the force behind World Central Kitchen, a not-for-profit, non-governmental organization that he founded in 2010, which quickly became the world's preeminent provider of food relief after disasters anywhere in the world. Earthquakes, hurricanes, the pandemic— And even in ukraine since it came under attack by russia providing meals to help people through the immediate aftermath and teaming with locals to arrange longer-term solutions in recognition of his tireless work with world central kitchen which has now served millions of meals to people in need he was honored by president barack obama with the national humanities medal in 2015 the james beard foundation's humanitarian of the year award in 2018 and in 2019 a nomination for the Nobel Peace Prize. As President Bill Clinton put it, quote, he's a national treasure for us and a world treasure now. He's really one of the most special people I've ever known, close quote. The author of the New York Times bestselling book, We Fed an Island, he has been profiled on 60 Minutes, featured on the cover of Time Magazine, which has twice named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And he is now the subject of a National Geographic documentary directed by Oscar winner Ron Howard, called We Feed People, which premiered at the South by Southwest Festival in March and will begin streaming on Disney Plus on May 27th. Chef, Jose Andres. Over the course of our conversation, the 52-year-old and I discussed the role that food played in his childhood, as well as his decision at the age of just 15 to leave home and pursue a career as a cook. What made him decide at just 21 to try his luck in America and how he changed the culinary landscape once he arrived here, how a Washington, D.C. chef named Robert Egger showed him a model of helping others, and what specifically inspired the establishment of World Central Kitchen in 2010, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. We are very honored to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. And uh, I guess to begin with, where where are you at the moment? I know you're always all over the place. So I am in my in my office
0: in Washington D.C. Uh, I can see from my window the National Archives, the place where we, the people, the documents that very much gave America a feeling of what was going to become. Um, I'm surrounded by good people who are people I work with. Um, They say they work with me, but I say, no, I work with you. (laughs) And and these are people that very much are the DNA of the company. This is very much where we run creativity, where we run accounting, financing, uh, human resources, but this is the place of creation. This is why. This is the happy place for me.
1: Well, first, I should say congratulations on this documentary, which people are about to get to see um, all all across America and I'm sure the world. But uh, for people who are not yet really familiar with your story, I hope you won't mind me asking some of the questions that are also addressed in the documentary. Uh, we always begin on this podcast just asking our guests where they were born and raised and what their own parents did for a living. So can we start there?
0: So i I was born in in north part of Spain, uh, Asturias, in a mining town called Mieres. Uh, I born in a Red Cross hospital. My father was uh, a nurse. My mom became, became one later on, but I grew up in Catalonia, in Barcelona, because my mom and my father moved to Barcelona for the opening of a new hospital. And I guess that's why I always say that I've been an immigrant all my life. I am from Asturias. My mom was from this country. My father was from Aragon. I grew up in Barcelona. Uh, I came very quickly to America. It's like when they tell me, where are you from? I'm like, I'm from so many places at once. Uh, And I I embrace that feeling that people like me, we build bridges because I feel all my life I've been an immigrant in a way and my role has been. Um, making people welcome—that's a matter where they are from, but also making people feel okay about faraway places, and that's why all of immigrants is so important.
1: And it seems like, I guess, in a way, empathy and uh, you know, caring for strangers might also run in the family. When you when you say that both of your parents were nurses,
0: I mean, my father um, will cook on the weekends, mainly Sundays. My mom will be more in charge Monday through uh, Friday, Saturday, even for the record, everybody help at home, meaning my mother may be in charge, but my father help, and my brothers help my mother uh, and myself. Uh, But my father will cook more on Sundays and my father will be the kind of guy that will invite everybody, will not keep a, a list of who he invited. And my mother was always worried because you never knew if ten people, twenty or fifty will show up. Literally. And my father will always have this the same answer. Like, don't worry, don't worry. If more people show up, I just grab a bigger pen and I add more rice. Right. That's <laughs> a problem solved. I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's a good way to see it. So I guess I got that part of my dad. And my mom was very much the one that will make anything happen. She became a nurse already pregnant of my fourth brother. So my mother, man, she could she could go through walls. Um, and, and, and I guess I got that, that part from my mother too. And she loved to cook too at home even. Um, she will make these red peppers roasted and then she'll peel them, will help her. Then she'll do this garlic with oil. She will put the peppers, she will add some water she will reduce the peppers for an hour until the water evaporated. Then she will add some sherry vinegar. That, that sauce within the peppers became velvety, almost like a beautiful reddish color, giving a beautiful kiss to the surface of the red peppers. To this day, I love those red peppers like, oh, my God. It's like I don't make them often enough. And uh, so between the the rice dishes of my father, the red peppers and croquetas of my mom, is how how uh, I grew up in a in a in a home that we didn't go to restaurants because it's not what you did because you couldn't afford it in the first place. Even my mom and my dad work working class. You cook at home. Period is the way. Um, and for me, cooking at home and setting up the table and sharing a meal. Uh, it's something like maybe we took for granted when we were little. and Maybe I will complain like, why well, I need to sit on the table? <laughs> but that's something I realized the power that had that moment every every day of the week, uh, having lunch, or uh, having dinner together.
1: Well, so, you know, I wonder if you can talk about that. It seems like there was a turning point in your life at about the age of, of 15 where, uh, and you talk a little bit in the documentary about the fact that your, you know, your home life, was in some ways wonderful, in some ways a little intense. Um, but at the same time, you were also drawn to, to food. So what, what was the calculation at the age of 15 that I'm going to go off and do what?
0: Well, my father was very smart in the sense I was not doing very well at school. Um, I'm the type of guy that maybe learns more with, with the woods on the ground, having the pen on the hand more than sitting in a desk and, and, and my father, I think, realized that when I say 15, because my birthday is on July 13th, s- sometimes maybe the year is just going from 15 to 16, but, but my father knew that I love cooking because I always was helping him and was cooking at home. And, and there was this opportunity to go to this school that was at cooking school. And I didn't hesitate. My father, I think, was very smart in that sense. And I went to that school. Let's say that I never graduated from that school either. I didn't graduate from high school. I didn't graduate from the cooking school until only recently. And they gave me this honorific kind of degree. And I think they used me more to sell more, <laughs> to sell the school to other students around Spain than was... But, but obviously, for me, uh, that school was important in the sense that cement, that, yes, I wanted to be a cook, for me, it's not a profession. For me, it's something I love. And especially when you see that food itself, cooking itself, gives you a huge amount of highways in other worlds. If you're a cook, you can be anything you want because you can be a cook and be a movie director, you, you, uh, and do the best food movies ever, or, or other things, or documentaries. If you are a cook, you can be a humanitarian. If you are a cook, you can be on marketing and PR. If you are a cook, a food person, you, you can be a writer. Uh, you can write comics. If you're a cook, you can send food to space. Uh, if you're a cook, you can be giving classes at Harvard and teach physics through food. If you are a cook, you can partner with musicians and 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 play uh, entire piece as you are making a paella. If you are, I mean,
1: yeah.
0: And this applies to every other profession. So for me, going to that school, obviously, uh, even I didn't graduate. Cement, cement that I wanted to be a cook. That this is what I was going to do. And my father, forever, I will be very grateful. Obviously, my mom too. But my father was the one pushing. When my mom was like, no, he has to study. He has to finish high school. And my father was more like, come on, let, let he loves cooking. Let's make sure early on he learns that profession. And those summers, um, uh, when I say I didn't graduate, it is because very much I will find jobs in Barcelona that will pay me some money so I could stay in Barcelona and pay my own apartment. And in the summers, I will go to these places when all the tourists around Europe and around the world will come to Spain, where I will work in those summer restaurants that gave me all this experience of working under pressure, feeding a lot of people with only two or three people in the kitchen, when everybody will come at the same time. And for me, probably was an important part of the person I became.
1: So I guess it's only five or six years later that you made the decision to come to America and... Uh, and I guess New York specifically at first as, as just a 21 year old guy, what for you was the biggest dream at that point? If you could have imagined the best way that things would unfold, what would it have looked like?
0: Well, between, um, me cooking and going cooking in school and working in restaurants and coming to America was an in between that I did the military service. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time I came to America. I was a Navy boy. In a ship, a tall ship, not any ship, a tall ship, four mast, amazing. Like from any of the best movies. Imagine that ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with all the cells, three hundred people working on that boat. Man, fascinating. First time I came Pensacola. First time I came New York, Hudson River up, watching the Lady Liberty, Ellis Island. And for a second thinking as I was watching the American flag before I came into Manhattan Seaport, that the f- stars in the night beautiful sky symbolized the stars in the American flag where everything was possible, that you were free and protected at the same time under that beautiful starry sky. <laughs> I was very naive and probably <laughs> I didn't I didn't know better about anything when <laughs> I found out later that they symbolize the states. I was like, man, I think I think my story that symbolizes <laughs> the, the free dark, starry sky is a much better story yes. anyway. <laughs> but I don't want to change that. I don't want anybody to say that an immigrant wants right. to change the symbolism of the American <laughs> flag, but I'm only telling you as it happened to me. Yes. So when I came back, Obviously, I came back with a very clear idea. I wanted to be part of America. I love America. I love the movies. I love the NBA. I I mean, when I was young, I would escape from the window of my house to go to downtown Barcelona. And a trek would take me two hours to watch some of the first NBA games that you could watch in Spain into this little club that you had to pay for a gin and tonic uh, <laughs> as your entry. And there was not many people there, but for me it was fascinating watching NBA. Yeah. Imagine when I began watching Chicago Bulls uh, playing the New York Knicks uh, Ewing against Jordan. <laughs> um, uh, for me it was like, that was one of the reasons I wanted to come to America. Yeah. But it happens to me as a cook, that Manhattan itself, even the whole New York, became the melting when we talk about the melting pot, a young cook like me, without moving out of the island of Manhattan, almost could experience every single cooking from around the world without moving from a little island. And this to me became very powerful. It's like, I can receive the education of my life in the streets of New York. Um, this only tells me that when my daughter uh, was thinking about going to university and she wanted to apply for New York, and what you, uh, I told her, no, no, I want you to study in Washington, D.C. I'm a very protective dad. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't understand this thing. You're going away. And my daughters said, Daddy, we need to talk. Okay. I put one hour in the calendar. We sit at home. The meeting lasted one minute. My daughter, <laughs> Carlota, tells me, Daddy, you always told me that you became who you became learning in the University of the streets of New York. Daddy, I only want to have the same opportunity like you have. and like, okay, meeting is over. <laughs> uh, so New York became very important yeah. for me. I could say any other city, major city in America could become very important too, Chicago, L.A., uh, Miami. But New York, really, I always say I'm, I'm a Washingtonian. I've been here 30 years. But my other little heart has been always in New York because it's where I began as a young boy walking those streets of New York um, my understanding of the symbolism of America, symbolism of the melting pot.
1: But I guess, you know, it was only maybe, what, two years after uh, being in New York that you end up relocating to Washington, D.C., and it, it really makes me wonder, based on the two kinds of sides of your life, the the cooking and the activism or the humanitarian work, I mean, would would these things have been possible for you to make the mark that you've made in both of these areas had you not been in D.C.? I guess, why did you go to D.C.? Because you that there was the opportunity to start your your first restaurant there? Or just why, why D.C.?
0: Well, I was a very young chef. I already feel I was working with one of the best chefs in the history of mankind, Ferran Adria from El Bulli. Uh, he was very young himself, but that was the place that things were happening. And and Ferran and I, we've been friends since then. And, and I'm super amazed of his success and what he's done for the world. And I know he's very proud of whatever else I've been able uh, to achieve. But me, I was looking for a place to belong. New York, it looked to me, still I was uh, great for a young cook and pure adventure and um, the crazy nights of New York were real. Um, uh, I love New York with all my heart, but at the same time, I felt like I needed, I needed someone else to find a place to belong, to throw an anchor. And for many reasons, New York is the most exciting city, in, in one of the most exciting cities in the world. But at the same time, I felt like I was too, too naughty there. <laughs> and I was uh, on my way to uh, Japan, Because I got an offer to go as a cook to open a restaurant in Tokyo as a cook, a tapas place. And in my way, I was in La Jolla, don't tell me why, in San Diego. And I was working in a restaurant, not even working, I was advising to a restaurant called Barcelona in Prospect on La Jolla, overlooking La Jolla, beautiful La Jolla. And and again, I was looking for a place to, like a sailor I was, to throw my anchor and say, I'm going to belong here. Was Richard Melman, one of the best restaurateurs in the history of America, the owner of Letus Entertain You, that in one of my visits to Chicago, he told me, "I know you're looking. You can come and work with us, um, but whatever you decide, just make sure you stay and 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 look forward and don't look back and use bed for one place and never hesitate uh, in whatever decision you." you take to keep looking forward, but throw the anchor and I stay in one place. So I guess that was my place. I came to Washington, DC, and those guys um, offered me the job, has become my best friends, Roberto and Rob. And here we are almost 30 years later with uh, many, many restaurants in DC, seven or eight, almost 40 restaurants all across America, in the Bahamas, in Dubai, we are about to open. and. And Washington is the place I got, I got my three daughters uh, born uh, at the Sibley Hospital, and and I always say yes, I'm I'm a New Yorker in many ways. I'm a New York boy. I love that my daughter is working there and, and live there, and and now I have family in New York and a ton of friends. But Washington is the place beyond any anywhere I go to Spain that I go home where my daughter is born, where my wife and I, we, we, we love and where we have uh, some of the biggest amount of friends we can have anywhere.
1: Yeah. So there are some people listening who know you only from the humanitarian work, not from the, uh, the cooking. They may never get to go to a Jose Andres restaurant, um, but they know you're a, a very significant chef. Can you explain, you know, there's the, as I understand it, really the, the America before you tapas were not, uh, widely popular, um, molecular gastronomy, a lot, a lot of things that, that you, I, you know, maybe can you just explain for dummies, for dummies who are listening like me, who, who want to better understand how you changed the game, put aside humility. What, what did you do that other people had not done before? Uh,
0: I don't know, I think I've been given more credit than credit I deserve, but Spanish cooking was here already. It's plenty of good stories and good names. Um, That was good people, good immigrants before me that uh, for many, many years, if not over a century brought Spanish cooking. Remember that the Spain was very present many centuries ago in, in America, in Florida, in Louisiana, in New York. And, and history sometimes have a tendency to make those moments forget, be forgotten. Maybe it was because the Spanish-American war in Cuba that everybody wiped out the early story of Spain in America, in California, with all the respect to the Native Americans that we here before. But the Spain was first in, in America, of the, of the countries came from, way before the English, way before anybody else. So I can say that the Spanish cooking, besides... All the different Native American cooking, maybe happening around. Uh, we were first bringing any influence from the outside. Period. Well, maybe with, with, um, with permission of the Vikings. That seems also they came, way before even the Spanish. Um, but I'm very proud of that. That's why I always said that I was not coming to a country I didn't know. I was coming to a country somehow was already part of the Spanish DNA. And I mean that in the in the best uh, best possible way. So for me, coming America was almost like coming also home to a place um, became part of Spanish people before me. So when I came, Spanish cooking was already here. Maybe um, was a lot of people that didn't come, um, being some of the best chefs or cooks um, in Spain, and they opened a restaurant as a way to survive. But listen, was good restaurants when I came places that um, and they did they they did a good homage to all things Spain. What I did that maybe was different um, was that obviously I began trying to bring the best Spanish products that Spain offer, not only the good American products cook as, as Spain will, but the importing products we we they had here and start making. I claim that the Spanish cooking was many things that people were confusing and mixing with Mexican and Latin American and Tex-Mex. Every one of those cooking deserve all our respect, but I don't think mixing everything, the melting pot is only good when you understand where the ingredients that make that melting pot come from. And the Spanish cooking was one more ingredient of the melting pot that was being confused with Mexican and nobody was learning much. Not about Mexico, not about the Spanish, not about Tex-Mex, not about any other Latin American cooking. So I just began doing that in 1993. Tapas was small dishes that you do in the bar, especially in the south of Spain. Even in Spain, tapas has been, over the last 30 years, kind of, over the last 30, 40 years has become something much more conscious to everybody in Spain that we live through tapas. Tapas is not food. Tapas is a style of life. It's a way of life. Usually you eat them on the bar. Usually you share. Uh, usually you eat many different dishes. And that way of, and then the sharing, giving yourself to others, others to you, not being possessive, being with the people, not either person, um, that you could have a meal with five, seven, eight things. So yes, tapas became very popular in Washington. Even many restaurants to this day that they have nothing to do with Spain, they use the word tapas instead of messe to describe that they want you to share and took off all across America. And, and I have a feeling many parts of America where tapas began becoming a hot thing, they maybe they didn't realize because Washington was the political hub but not the media hub. If, if, if I began in New York, maybe nobody will doubt that I had a lot to do with Spanish cooking and tapas in America. But because I began in D.C., uh, it's question maybe, <laughs> or nobody is really aware. But right. I never spent a lot of time or care. My, my joy was that the Spanish cooking was growing, real Spanish cooking, real Spanish chefs, all American chefs going to Spain to learn and bringing, like me, the love for the ingredients and the traditional recipes. So that's how all began. And yes, 30 years later, I have a lot of tapas places. My places, they've been very popular. A lot of restaurants will say, Jose, I ate my first tapas in America in your place. Now I have children, I have fathers and mothers that they were little toddlers when they ate their first croqueta in my restaurant. And now they're bringing their children to eat their first croqueta in my restaurants. And there you know that something Something is going on, very powerful. And then about molecular cooking, which is a term I never liked, but the American English press has always used. This was more avant-garde Spanish cooking. Spain, because Ferran Adrià, who I mentioned before, we really pushed the boundaries of cooking. And this doesn't mean that we were doing anything strange. We'll be as simple as getting a glass of water and asking, What can I do with this glass of water has never been done before? As simple as that. When you start doing this type of thinking, um, and you start not only making mayonnaise, but understanding why you have this amazing emulsion between the protein, the water, and the oil that is stable. And instead of you knowing how to make mayonnaise, you understand the why of mayonnaise. This begins giving you power to start changing the fats and the oils and the proteins and the water already is not used plain water, but you can add flavors and can be truffle, but then apply the same to everything. At the end, everybody has it confused. It seems that molecular gastronomy is something strange, but when you are eating bread, that's molecular. When you are having a beer, that's molecular. When you're having bread, uh, wine, that's molecular. When you're having a liquor, that's molecular. When you're putting something in the microwave, that's molecular. When you're grilling, that's molecular. You see, molecular has always been molecular. (laughs) Um, But now the difference is we understood the power of going to school, learning from scientists. Uh, People like Harold McGee, one of the American first people in the world, an American scientist that brought a book um, about cooking and understanding the why. And, and this is what has happened over the last 30, 40 years. And Spain has been in the front lines of that movement. I feel I've been in the front lines on that movement because Ferran Adria, I was very young when I began with him. And who was going to say that 14 years later, we had this class that we've been doing for 14 years at Harvard, where we teach physics through cooking. And that the group of chefs, we were able to create that class, Ferran and I, with the help of others and professors at Harvard, and that all of a sudden became one of the most popular undergrad classes at Harvard. Man, this <laughs> is great because now nobody makes fun of us anymore. <laughs> Everybody takes it seriously. Now right. we have power we never had before. Before you, we we will cook out of heart and passion. Now... We cook with heart and passion, but also with brain. We know every day better and better why things happen. Therefore, we have the power to keep making what we do better and even to come up with new things. At Evernorth Health
1: Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best, it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line, it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Jumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life.
0: No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: So as the documentary really captures beautifully, it seems like this humanitarian chapter of your life, which has become so much of your of your life in recent, I guess, over, well over a decade, did it begin? Can you explain how it was sort of influenced by another person uh, who you met, I believe in, in DC, who had been doing a version of this going back to 1988 with uh, who's, who's Robert Egger? Well, before
0: 1988. Yes. Robert was this bartender. Uh, Washington crazy guy <laughs> who he saw a lot of waste going on in the restaurant in his in the restaurant he worked, and he really had a good heart saying, "What if I empower people with that food is about to be wasted? And more important, more important than food waste is wasting people's life. What if I'm able to give people a chance in the process of doing something with that food is about to be wasted? So he got the truck, he got the kitchen. And I think it was on Bush inauguration uh, day, um, he he went to hotel to hotel that they were doing inauguration, party celebrations with all the food that was untouched. Br- brought it back to the kitchen, re-put it in little containers, and began going to the different homeless shelters or people in the streets that needed a meal. That is what gave the birth to this central kitchen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I joined in 1993 as a young cook in the same way I began working in my restaurants feeding the few. I joined that organization learning how to feed the many I was there peeling potatoes next to ex-combits and ex-homeless and in the process I used realized that we can all learn from anybody not only from the people that we think are smarter than us but sometimes we take people for granted those men and women that maybe were on the street or maybe were in jail a few days or weeks before They were as wise and they had as much wisdom and and, and street savvy as anybody you will ever meet. And in the process, they will share with you their experiences, who they were, and they will make you better only by listening to them. You see, it feels like we can only listen to people that look like have more money than us or people that you think they're smarter than us. And sometimes we don't give a chance to everyday folks, which actually... They have a power beyond imagination, the opportunity to to help us understand who they are and make us in the process by only listening to them, make us better. Robert Eger told me that philanthropy, we all have it very wrong. that philanthropy seems is, is we always do it in a way that seems is about the liberation. It's, it's about the redemption of the giver. You give, you feel good, you're redeemed. that's it. But then philanthropy must be really about the liberation of the receiver. To give is okay, But if we keep giving, and still we have hunger in our streets, if we keep giving, and still children forgotten around the wall, really we are throwing money at the problem. If we start giving to liberate the people, we are trying to help. And in the process of giving, we are able to help fight hunger in the cities we are supported, if we are able maybe to give an opportunity to children to have an education, all of the sudden, you're not throwing money at the problem, but investing in the solution. Obviously, it's much easier to destroy than to build. That's why, for, for me, these learnings I got from Robert Eger uh, I always took them to heart. I became chairman of that organization. Uh, right now, I am still very involved trying to showcase the amazing job that DC Central Kitchen keeps doing so many years later. We are about to move to a new location. We did a capital raise that we are trying to reach uh, almost $40 million for a brand new kitchen that is not only a kitchen is going to keep feeding Washington, but it's going to keep training the men and women that are going to keep feeding the city and in the process becoming cooks well-trained, that then restaurants like mine, we can hire them. All of a sudden, you don't throw money at the problem, feeding the hungry, you invest in the solution. You feed the hungry, but you train people, you give them hope, you give them a reason to belong, you fight food waste, all of a sudden, one dollar is multiplied by four. The city becomes better with every dollar anybody invests in that organization. That was the meaning of Robert egg in my life, and probably wasn't a kitchen maybe in a way it wouldn't exist without it
1: well, so that was d c central kitchen that you become involved with in ninety three and then world central kitchen was it I know that where it kicked into high gear was after the earthquake in Haiti where you're nearby and the Cayman Islands on vacation and you feel helpless, but was that this idea had it had it been something you'd been thinking about even before then or was it really just uh being close and feeling helpless?
0: Yeah, that's a great question because the reason is yes. I saw, I saw Katrina unfold in the TV. There was plenty of people that they did great. Uh, in my profession alone, they did what they could. But remember, the low nine was underwater. People were escaping the horrors of, of a place they couldn't call home anymore. All the parts of New Orleans totally flooded as we saw those um, um, that city being being covered in water and and everybody seems ended in the superdome and we, we I remember listening horror stories of what was going on in the superdome, a system that was collapsed with no food, with no medicines with nobody going there to help them. Downtown New Orleans. And me I thought, man, everybody has everything wrong about an arena. About a sports venue. Everybody thinks it's a place you go to listen music or you go to war to watch hockey or NBA games. When actually it's wrong. An arena is a gigantic restaurant that entertains with sports and music. We were supposed to be there with a very big truck, full of food, open some of the food stands that also feeds people in the good times. 10% of anybody in America works in the food business. You only had to go and pick up a few volunteers by screaming, who wants to volunteer? Probably you'll get everybody raising their hand anyway. You'll open some of those stalls in the two or three floors, in two or three places across the arena. And... Food and water is not something anybody will miss anymore. Now let's go fix all the other problems. At the end of the day, when an emergency happens, when you need to take care of the health care of people, you send nurses and doctors. When you need to be doing rescue missions, you send firefighters and and people that have experience in, in debris and and looking in the ruins of a building after an earthquake. When you need to do assessments on the bridges or the, or the buildings so they don't collapse, you send engineers or architects. Well, when you need to feed people, who do you think is the most prepared people to do that? So with that very simple idea is when, of my inaction in a moment like New Orleans, when Haiti happened is my moment and it's like, okay, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna learn. I'm gonna start watching. I, I, I know how food empowers people in my city but in an emergency, how can we do better? And this is when I went to Haiti. Yes, I I, I, I was cooking for, I I was there for a few weeks. I went back often on the first year in 2010. I've been in Haiti so often that it's one of the places I've traveled the most in my lifetime. I have so many stamps in my passport. I have a lot of good friends in Haiti now. But for me, it was as simple as, uh, let me learn. And that's how we began. So now, in the last, uh, we've been there in a few hurricanes already, myself, with my team. Last September was an earthquake. Uh, again, in the south, in Jeremy, And my joy was that we were able to respond fast and quick. The good thing, like I opened in, uh, I created the organization in 2010, is that I was very proud that it gave me the opportunity to be there next to the Haitian people Again, in a very difficult moment, quick and fast, like nobody else could. But it didn't end there. Within 10 days, another hurricane was hitting Category 5, New Orleans. And I landed within 12 hours before the hurricane arrived to New Orleans. And we were ready. We had kitchens. We had generators. We had food. Nothing was going to stop us this time those memories of not answering and helping New Orleans, beautiful New Orleans, a city that is full of Spanish names uh, on the streets because its connection, early connection with Spain. All of a sudden, I was going to try to make sure that we could reach as many people as we could. Uh, we were making sandwiches as the hurricane was above hovering. Um, when the When the hurricane passed and was safe, first thing I did is what I always do. I I went early to try to find some of the food companies to see who made it well and was not damaged. And in the first visit I did, by nine o'clock, I had this entire truck full of fruit and vegetables. Even we already had that on our own. But this way I was used making connections that you cannot make on the phone because the cables and the cell signals go down. But what we always do, Go find who made it, who is okay, and let's start connecting. I knew I was going to have enough fruit for the next 10 days. I knew I was going to have meat and ham and cheese for the next 10 days. We already had, but I already was able to connect with companies because going there, that connection makes you so powerful. But then as soon as those things happen, I did what everybody in Wall Center Kitchen always does and what I love to do the most. Let's go find the communities. Offshore, we went to the low nine, making sure those men and women, those brothers and sisters were okay and start connecting with the local leaders to try to see what they needed. Offshore, I went to Little Cayou. Offshore, I went to Lafitte. Offshore, I began going to the faraway corners near the coastline where we knew probably the biggest damage happened. And to me, it gave me, like happening in Haiti, 13, 12, 13 years before gave me that feeling so many years, even before Haiti, that we were in New Orleans, this time answering uh, in a very cohesive way and where I had no other, as my driver, as a guy called Mitch Landrieu, that nobody is more beloved in Louisiana and probably in America than Mitch Landrieu. And nobody knows New Orleans and Louisiana than Mitch Landrieu. And if you're gonna be helping people, who better than the locals to help people? That's what the DNA of World Central Kitchen. For me to tell you that I had Miss Landry as my as with me, uh, he called me my his assistant. I'm I'm your assistant Jose. I'm like not really. <laughs> yeah, I'm here at your service, sir. And this is what World Central Kitchen does. You see, we we look for the helpers in the local community, and that's how we are able to come from the outside. To support the locals, giving them the power to empower us to make the best decisions, so we can have a quick and fast delivery of meals after an emergency. That very much sums up.
1: And with with food that they that they like, local food and all of that. That's you, I
0: know. and and jambalayas because yeah. we we began buying from a couple of companies that they had all those mufalettas already done. I'm like. I don't want donations. We'll buy them from you. We want to keep you in business. Right. And if you can make more, activate it because I'll buy them instead of doing them myself with my volunteers. This is what we do.
1: And this has been, as the documentary shows, this is the case starting in Haiti, but New York after Hurricane Sandy, uh, Houston after Hurricane Harvey, Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, uh, all over after, you know, when COVID hit in DC between the insurrection attempt and the inauguration in 2021 and now even in Ukraine. um, I guess what I hope we can do with our last few minutes is just ask you the first thing that comes to your mind when I uh, about a bunch of random things like uh, that, that relate to this. So just in a in a word or a sentence, just the what what your answer is. And I guess to begin with, you have personally witnessed so many of these terrible situations that has to take a, a toll on you, right? Is there how do you make sure that you're okay?
0: I'm okay. I am. I'm. I'm only as good as the people I have around me, and and I have amazing good people. My, my wife is. My wife is a rock. My children. My friends. And the people I work with. And everybody is always looking after me. More than I have time to look after them, so I, I'm okay. I'm blessed in that sense.
1: What's been the situation that you've entered into with World Central Kitchen, where you felt most at risk, most that it was the scariest situation?
0: I I, I never felt it was anything scary. Uh, food food brings the best out of people. Um, You know, um, being feeding near a a volcano in Guatemala that was active and nobody knew where the lava was coming from. Um, Landing in Bahamas in the middle of the ocean after one hour helicopter ride where a lot of debris was all around and nobody to clean it had its dangers. Being in Ukraine where missiles are hitting right and left and you have mines and in the process of going feed somebody. You don't know what may happen, but all those fears of something happening are uh, always, are overcome by, by, by the very simple joy of being next to people that you know that food is going to be changing everything. At the end of the day, so many people put themselves in dangers, um, that the least we can do is being next, next to them, just providing meals. We, we play it safe, but. But I never felt, I I don't know, use the joy of giving food overcomes overcome any any other fear.
1: You have at various times said that you think there should be a cabinet level secretary of food and agriculture. Maybe there should be uh, a food first responders corps like the National Guard. Um, What is the one thing, if you could snap your fingers and have the United States government immediately do one thing to help with your mission, what would that be? Well, my
0: mission is on behalf of what I believe we need in America and in every other country in the world. But I will have one food expert at the national security level next to the president of the United States of America, the same way we have the the defense experts and the energy experts. Uh, I think food is much more than agriculture. I just met with the secretary for agriculture. I love him. And he's super well prepared, Secretary Bilsack, head governor of Iowa. But they do believe we need to see food as something much more powerful. If we don't take food seriously, can this not only America, but the world? The world will not be a happy place if food is not taken seriously. We must take food more seriously and put somebody that brings the power of food on the ear of the president of the United States.
1: I'm sure many people have wanted to make documentaries about you. Why did you say no until Ron Howard? And then why did you say yes to Ron Howard? Because as much as I love TV and
0: the little screen and the biggest screen, um, sometimes TV makes, you know, people think in different ways. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not bad. And I've seen a lot of cooking shows that they've done great, but then I've seen some young fellas not handling TV very well. Uh, I thought that TV was going to be making some of the team members at in a different way that they will do it if TV cameras are not. So that's why it took time. It took years. And, and that's why Ron, I say no. But they say no with the most respect. Uh, but then it's why I say yes, because nobody will be better than Ron. He's a very loving, caring person. And, and we always had people following us with cameras, young cinematographers like Sebastian and Alicia, and they were not used guys filming. They were us. They were part of the family. They were only used making sure that everything will be documented. Guys that very often will put the cameras down because they will be helping us deliver food. This type of guys. That the mission of food was more important than the mission of filming. And, and that's why they were always with us. And that's why uh, Ron will tell you that some of the footage was from these people like Alicia and Sebastian plus the team of, of Ron, obviously, but nobody could tell this story probably better than Ron did. It's many stories that are missing. It's a lot of people are missing. It's only so much you can do in an hour and a half documentary. Nobody knows how we finance ourselves. Nobody knows how it's, it's so many other stories, but it's actually the beauty of documentaries. One documentary doesn't have to be telling the story of everything. It's only giving you a glimpse into a window, not only into my life, I told Ron very clearly, World Center Kitchen, I didn't call it Jose Andres Kitchen. (laughs) I call it World Center Kitchen because to feed the world, we're going to need everybody. And there you saw some people of the many that every day, not only with World Center Kitchen, but even with other organizations, small or big, that every day they wake up in the morning and notice without nobody even uh, praising them. Like sometimes I feel I'm overpraised. And those are the men and women, especially women that feed the world. Silent voices that every day wake up to cook for the people that are hungry. And that that documentary, I Hope, is an homage not only to the men and women of Wall Central Kitchen that do that, but to the many other people around the world that every single day, they only do that.
1: What's it like for you to watch it? I, I assume you've seen it. I mean, it's the, you're capturing your last 12 years of your, your life and the, and the organization. I mean, is what is that like to look back at?
0: Well, obviously, it's a moment of thinking. It made me, it made me cry at the end when I saw so many people doing the Twitter and, and something I'm very proud of that we began doing with the iPhone filming in real time what we were doing. Uh, And now you saw many people doing it from different parts, not only in America, but around the world. With that beautiful music, that gave me a sense like, oh my God, we built something huge. Um, Obviously, um, uh, for me, having my family was important. Um, I didn't know my family was going to be involved as boys. Obviously, he was trying to, to set the ground of, of why, who I was. But then I think he did a beautiful job showing that this is not Jose Andres. This is not either person. This is amazing individuals with the people that we all believe in this very simple idea that whatever there is a fight, so hungry people will eat. We will be there, you know, paraphrasing. Uh, Great. Yes. So
1: yes. Um, what's the best restaurant at which you've ever eaten? El
0: Bulli, without a doubt, is closed now. Ferran keeps creating. He's now trying to uh, tell all of us how to be more creative and giving us a glimpse of his smart in this kind of place. He's reopening in the same place where the restaurant was. But El Bulli, without a doubt, was something like blow your mind. That you can eat just one olive, (laughs) one humble olive. And you will put it in your mouth. And that will be the best olive you had in your life because that olive was liquid. Yes. Only held by a very thin membrane that only he could know how to make. The beauty of that man was that he didn't keep every secret for himself. He shared it with everybody. Not only making himself better, but everybody along him better too. That restaurant that can give you an olive and make you dream that that was the best olive you'll ever eat in your entire life. And this is the type of place, obviously, I will forever miss even I know him, and I, I honor him with my own restaurants following what he began with Minibar. That, without a doubt, was the best meals I ever had in my life was always at the Bulli, because creati- creativity makes you always keep dreaming that the, the, the sky is the limit.
1: If you could choose your last meal, what would it consist of?
0: Probably a couple of fried eggs with a quarter kilo of caviar.
1: And finally, uh, for all of us who are so grateful and, and admire what you do with World Central Kitchen, what is the one thing that, or, or what, would, what would you say to average, everyday person listening who wants to help? What is the best way that they can help you? Well, listen...
0: Uh, everybody can help in any way. They can share their brains. They can share their heart. They can share their smile. You can do this in the supermarket, helping somebody putting their bags in the back of their their car, somebody crossing a street, picking up a piece of paper from the floor and keeping your city clean. A smiling to somebody that you may think is not going through a good moment. You see so much you can do with so little. Uh, obviously volunteering, obviously doing a lemonade stand and raising money like many children are doing or other ways and doing a cupcake bake. Everybody can be doing, and no used to donate to us, you used to donate something is close to your heart. But what everybody can be doing is making sure that we build longer tables, no higher walls. And is where everybody... Can make sure that if you are going to be listening to a leader, that's a matter if it's in your school, in your city, in your state, in Washington, president, senators, congressmen. Make sure that we support leaders that want to bring the best from within all of us. Leaders that want to bring the best angels out of us, not our worst demons out of us. Leaders that want to build longer tables. Leaders that gives you a solution for a better tomorrow. No leaders that try to make you believe that those that don't think like you are your enemies. Leaders that want to respect each other and to listen to each other and to understand that you cannot be the holder of only and all the truth. That there is such a leader, please tell me what they are because I want to join them because that means they figure out how to solve all the problems of the world. Nope. we will only solve all the problems of the world if we have different people from different backgrounds with different ideas and different thinking, sharing those longer tables. If we do that, we'll be fine. That's what everybody can be doing. Not for me, but for us, for we the people. Longer tables, no higher walls will always win the day. We need always to support leaders that believe in that simple idea. Republican or Democrat, independent or whatever you want to be, but respecting each other and building those longer tables.
1: Well, thank you so much for all the work that you do. Thank you for doing this and uh, keep up the unbelievable work. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Scott.
1: Thanks very much for tuning into Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com dot slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time. Thanks for joining us. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?